All right. In the packet that's in front of you, I had originally not intended necessarily to do this this week, but that's okay. Hey, everything, things change, right? Um, last week, we went through dispensationalism and, and kind of tried to help explain maybe why when you read some passages of Scripture, particularly the prophets, your mind goes to one place, and why I'm saying I don't think it should go to that place, I think it should go to a different place, and maybe try to help kind of lay some of those things out before we go into Ezekiel. And then there came the question is, well, what are the other views, and especially what is your view? And so uh, I thought I would take, this would be a good week to do that. Next week we'll spend on Ezekiel 40 to 48. Then we have uh, a week that is a member meeting week, and then after that I got something else planned for that little interval time there between then and the next member meeting, and then we'll go on from there. So uh, we're going to spend just one week on kind of laying out different understandings of the end times. And so uh, I hope more than anything that this is helpful. I fear that it might be a tad confusing. A little confusion is okay, all right? A little confusion is okay. You're going to have probably thousands more questions. That's also okay. We're not going to tackle all thousand questions, all right? Or 10,000 questions, or however many questions there might be. Because my experience has said that when it comes to end time stuff, small doses, right? Just a little bit at a time is probably enough. And this may even be too much. But um, in your packet, in the, la- the, let's see, the last, the back is a bibliography. The last um, three pages, illustration one, two, and three, is something of an attempt to put kind of a, a picture to the layout of the end times. I'm going to point something out about these, and, and it may help for you to look at some of these occasionally just to kind of fix in your mind what's happening here. Um, so that may or may not help if you're graphically inclined. That may help you think about it. If not, don't worry about it. Um, but essentially what we're going to go through tonight is um, alternative explanations for what this these passages of Scripture are actually talking about, and what we should be expecting of the future, all right, and and what the Bible is actually telling us about the future. Um, And so we're going to talk about that tonight. Um, Some of the more fierce debates in church today center around what the Bible does and doesn't say about the end times, and this is, when we talk about the end times, What we mean is, what I mean specifically is, that period of time leading to and including Christ's final coming, judgment, and glory. So, every time I talk about the end times and I say the end, people go, what end are you talking about? Tell me what what end are you talking about? And and it gets very hard to define because you kind of want to go, the end, end. I mean, when it's, when it's all done, when every, what is, what, how do, what do you say, you know, how do you say that? Um, Christ, fi- the, I mean, the, the time when he comes back and judges and Christ is sitting on the throne and, and we're all around him in, on earth and, and new earth and all that, whatever, however you want to talk about that, that's what we're talking about tonight. What that, the easy term for that 
maybe, maybe I don't know if it's easier, if it's more technical, technical term for that, is the, the branch of Christian doctrine known as eschatology. Eschatology. Eschatology is the study of the end things. The study of the end of things. Um, the study of the end. Eschatology. So that's what our topic is, is to try to understand, wrap our minds around what, how people understand, how people have taken Scripture and understand what's happening in the end. And Here's what I think we also have to kind of set in our minds, is that it does not matter what you or I think. All right, It's going to play out in the way that God has intended for it to play out. And when it plays out that way, then I guarantee you, all of us that are Christians will go, that's what that verse meant. Right? <laughs> so, right? We can all agree to that, right? That it will play out a certain way. And when we look in Scripture, we'll go, you know, it was right there the whole time. And somehow, you know, I missed that. And somebody, some probably little smart aleck over there in the corner will go, I told you so. You know, it would be somebody like that. Yeah, probably. <laughs> I, I doubt it. <laughs> you know, so we have to take all of this with a big heap and helping of humility and, and know that, you know, none of us has this thing figured out. None of us, there, there's far too many great wonderful Christians that you've listened to preach or that you've read their books or this, that, and the other that are differing on some of these things. But I think, I think, I'm hoping, what you will see by the end of tonight is actually how similar they are, not how different they are, all right? So that, that's help. It's not that it's any less confusing, right? Trying to work through the text and things like that. But my hope is that what you'll actually see is these things are really close. And, and what happens is you've got Christians that have been, that are, lo they love the Bible, they read the Bible, they take the Bible very seriously. And uh, it's, it's akin to two golfers standing up on a, to use a golf analogy real quick, to standing up on the tee box and they hit the ball down the fairway. One ends up on this side of the fairway and the other ends up on this side of the fairway. And they each are yelling at each other that you're a bad golfer. Well, you're both in the fairway, right? So <laughs> you both hit a, a really good shot. And so that's essentially what we're looking at with these different opinions, uh, for the most part, different readings of Scripture. Um, in many cases, a Christian's interpretation of Scripture is determined by his or her own eschatology. That means their own understanding of the end times. It's their interpretation of Scripture is really determined by how they think things are going to wind up in the end. And that's even true if you can't explain your own eschatology. Many of you are probably in that boat where you're like, when it comes to end times, you're like, I'm an open book. I have absolutely no clue as to how things are going to line out in the end. And it's just, it's all going to pan out one day and whatever. But what you probably don't realize is that even some of the influences of how you think the end times are going to flesh out, some of those influences that are bouncing around in your mind determine how you read the rest of Scripture and where you see the rest of Scripture leading and pointing to. Even some of the questions you ask, a lot of times, you may not realize this, you'll ask a question, and in my head, I'm already, I already know where you're 
your eschatology is, what you think about the end times, because it forms the question you ask about a certain passage of Scripture or whatever. And, 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 and like I said last week, what's hard about that is, if you don't realize what your, your own understanding is, then it's, it's hard to, to either maybe take in a different opinion or to understand where someone's coming from when they're preaching uh, passages of Scripture or, what, or whatever. But you, you'll, it will determine, the way you understand the end times will determine a lot of the things that you see throughout the rest of the Bible. And when you read a passage of Scripture and say the prophets or something like that, you'll read it and go, well, that's talking about Jesus' second coming, or that's talking about the rapture, that's talking about this, that, or the other, because you already have these notions about the end times. You can't avoid it. It's, it's going to happen. And it's going, once you kind of nail down what I think is going, what I think Revelation is talking about, what I think Daniel is talking about, what I think some of these passages are talking about, then that, that's going to shape all the ways you see the rest of Scripture. All right? Okay. Um, now, here's some of the problems. In whatever way Christians may differ on eschatology, there are commonalities that are of first-order importance that all true Christians hold to. Now, I want to I stop right here for just a second. And really, we've got to nail this down. That the, the hard part about an end times discussion is it's sometimes the discussions almost sound like we're wanting to figure out where the line is between what is a Christian and what is not a Christian, right? You don't hold to X, therefore you're not a Christian, right? Oh, you don't believe that? Well, then you don't believe the Bible, right? And you'll hear some end times discussions go that direction, where now that I've determined you don't believe that, or you don't hold to exactly this way, then you are outside the Christian faith. And I would say, in some cases, rarely that will be true, but I'm almost willing to bet most of us have never had those conversations where there's legitimately someone who does not actually, is not actually a Christian that we're debating end times with, because typically people that aren't Christians don't debate about the end times. Um, so here's what is common amongst all of these positions. So regardless of what position we talk about tonight, and even dispensationalism last week, what is common about all of them are things that actually make people a Christian. One, the Bible is the Word of God. All right? So the, the positions that I'm going to present before you are from points of view that hold the Bible as the Word of God and therefore inerrant and infallible in everything that it says. Every person, well, I can't say every person about any position, but you get the idea. The, the people that promote and understand this way of thinking do believe, and the people that I read on these positions, do believe the Bible is inerrant, infallible, it's the Word of God, and have accounted for every verse in Scripture. All right? So could go to any verse in Scripture and say, this is what that means. This is what that is talking about. And take very seriously that verse that's on the page in front of me. So in other words, you're, you're pretty much not really going to be able to go, well, but this verse is the linchpin for this, for this view, and it rules. It, 
not going to happen. Like they're, they're, All these views account for all the passages of Scripture. You just read them or understand them slightly differently, right? Does that make sense? Okay, so that's first. Second, we are saved by grace through faith in the crucified, literally crucified, died, dead, dead. He was dead, and then he was put in a grave, and he was so dead that he laid there for three days, completely lifeless, and rose from the dead, Jesus Christ. It's, and, and, and believe that it is not by the correctness of our view that we are saved. Okay? <laughs> it, it is only by grace, through faith, in the dead, 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 and resurrected, 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 to real, 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 real life, physical body, right? Jesus, that we're saved. Okay? Clear on that? Pretty clear. All right. Last. These are not the only three things, but these are big three things, okay? That Jesus is really, really, really coming again. And he's going to come again in the same way that they saw him leave. So the way he got up was that his body was no longer in the grave, but it was walking around now outside the tomb, a resurrected, glorified body. He spent some days, some time with his disciples, and then he left, and he's going to come again in that same way. Physically, with all the same properties that he had when he left, he's going to come again in power and great glory to raise the dead, and literally raise them, physically from the grave, going to raise the dead, to rescue and reunite all who have trusted in him to judge the living and the dead to bring an end to this fallen world and its effects on our bodies and souls and to establish a new heaven and earth under the perfect and eternal reign of Christ. That is the Christian understanding of the end times. And anyone that agrees with that, truly agrees with that, is a Christian. Okay? You understand? So you're having a debate with somebody and they got... They're wild out here. They're like, you know, I, I don't know. I think there's going to be a dragon come up out of the sea and like going to bite people's heads or whatever. And they're like, I see this verse here that's talking about that. Do you agree with these things? This is what you're saying? Yes, those things are true. And then, okay, you're talking to a Christian, all right? So don't try to kick them out of the church or nothing like that, all right? They're, they're a Christian. They're your brother or sister in Christ. All right, we clear on that? We're good? All right couple more qualifications. <laughs> Pivotal to eschatology is the debate around the timing of the millennium. Not the millennium falcon, the millennium. All right? The millennium is, refers to a thousand-year peaceful reign of Christ that everyone's been fighting about since we learned of its existence. All right? This is the irony of the whole thing, but it's, it's about that. The millennium refers to the thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth prior to the consummation of his kingdom. Okay? So, and when we say, when I say consummation of his kingdom, I mean at the cross, the kingdom was inaugurated. Jesus told us that. I, 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 the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Right? He inaugurated the kingdom. Now he's inviting people into it. You can have citizenship in his kingdom by believing in his name, confessing him as Lord, and repenting of your sins. Right? He's inaugurated the kingdom. 
consummation of the kingdom is when all that initial stuff is over and everybody's either been judged and thrown into the lake of fire or everybody's in eternal life and new heavens, new earth. Got it? We, we tracking so far? Okay. So uh, the millennium is, is the period before that happens. All right? And here's where it comes from. Revelation 20, verses 1 to 3. I didn't include this because it's the only verse in the packet, but I want to read it, and you can read it too if you want. Revelation 20, 1 to 3. It says this, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. There's millennium, thousand years. And threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After this, after that, he must be released for a little while. Okay? That reference right there, there's several others that are something similar to that, but, but that's the main one right there is this millennial period, this thousand-year period. He, he seized the devil, threw him into the, the dungeon, sealed it over him uh, for a thousand years. Then he's going to release him for a little bit and then destroy him again. All right, so that is all we're concerned with right now, tonight. Now, we're going to talk about a number of different things, but that is the main thing we're concerned about we're going to talk about, Okay. So, the views of eschatology about Jesus' second coming are relative to this event. And within that uh, discussion are two subcategories. So, when we talk about the millennium, there's really two categories of view, okay, on Jesus' coming in relation to the millennium. So, the first view is called a premillennialist view. You can hear it defines itself, doesn't it? Premillennialist. And it says that Christ will return before the millennium. Okay? Very simple, right? Premillennialist, very simply, says Christ will return before that thousand year period of peace. Okay? Inside the premillennialist camp, there are two broad groups of people, groups of ideas. One we talked about last week, which is called dispensationalism, or the dispensational premillennialist. It's a mouthful, all right? The second is referred to as historic premillennialist. I'm going to go ahead and tell you. You grew up hearing seven years of tribulation, thousand years uh, millennial reign of Christ, you know, all those kinds of things. You grew up hearing that. You, grew up, you really want to read the historic premillennialist position. That's your jam, all right? Just trust me on that. You're going to want to read that. What's that? I'll give you some references here in just a minute. Um, some people to look at. Um, so there's, so premillennialist, Christ is going to return before that thousand-year reign, uh, that thousand-year peaceful reign, all right? The two inside that, one is dispensationalism, we covered that last week, the other is historic premillennialism, all right? Then there is a group called 
post-millennialists, all right? So the post-millennialists say Christ will return after the millennial reign, after that millennium, okay? After that millennium of peace or whatever, where Satan is bound, all right? Inside that, there are also two groups of people. One is referred to, typically referred to as just post-millennial. That's typically what they refer to themselves as. But they would be kind of more like the conventional post-millennialist. And then there's a group that is slightly different than them called the amillennialist. All right, y'all have heard of probably amillennialism before. Um, they are also a kind of a subset of post-millennialism. So I think it's, I, I, I kind of debated about how to do this, all right, and how to, how to present this in the clearest way, and I'm hoping this is it. But essentially, if you can think of it as pretty much everybody is going to fall in one of two places. They either believe Christ is returning before the millennium or after. All right? Once they determine that, then there is a further understanding inside that of how that ends up fleshing out. We good? So far we're good? So far we're tracking? Am I just killing everybody? Just putting everybody to sleep. We're good. Okay. All right. Okay. So the first thing we're going to talk about is premillennialism. All right. Historic premillennialism. This isn't dispensational premillennialism. This is historic premillennialism. So according to historic premill people, the present church age will continue until a time of great tribulation and suffering comes on the earth. After that time, at the end of the church age, Christ will return to the earth to establish a millennial kingdom. Some pre-mill, historic pre-mill, take that to be a literal 1,000 years. It will be exactly 1,000 years. Some take, them to be, take it to be a, just a figurative, a long period of time. It's going to be a long period of time that he's going to come and reign. Um, so, but, but the point is, the church age is going to continue. There's going to come a great period of trial and suffering until it reaches a boiling point where it gets really, really, really bad. And at the point where it is the absolute, you know, pretty much worse as it can, bad as it can be, boom, Christ returns, sets up his thousand year reign. This is the, what they, when they read that passage out of Revelation 21 to 3, they see that happening right there. After that period of great suffering and tribulation, boom, he comes back, grabs Satan, throws him in the pit, puts it, binds him, puts the lid on the top, and is reigning for a thousand years. Shannon Grant, already questions. Go ahead. We're here. We're here. Hold on. I'm going to address that, okay? I'm, I'm with you. I, I anticipated, I said, what questions would Shannon ask? And I thought of those, okay. All right. Believers. All right, there he goes. Believers who have died will be raised from the dead, at that point, when he comes back. Their bodies will be reunited with their spirits. Again, we already talked about it. Everybody believes that, all right? Uh, it that it will happen at some point. Not everybody agrees on the timing. But we'll be reunited with their spirits, and these believers 
will reign with Christ on earth in perfect righteousness with resurrected bodies. Got it? Okay. Um, then at the beginning of this time, Um, at the beginning of this time, Satan will be bound, cast into the bottomless pit, so that he'll have no influence on the earth during that millennial reign, then after which he will be loosed, gathering all of the unbelieving for battle against Christ, in a battle that is typically referred to as Armageddon, where they will be soundly defeated, and the dead unbelieving, that is, the, they... they the dead bodies in the ground that died in their unbelieving state will be resurrected and whether there is unbelieving that were alive or unbelieving that were dead, they will be brought together and thrown into the bottomless pit, a uh, lake of fire uh, with Satan, the beast, and the false prophet at the end of that. And then following that, judgment, uh, following that judgment of those, the new heavens and the new earth will be occupied by those who truly follow Christ. You hear that? Now, that is going to be a tick different than a dispensational understanding. And you'll notice a couple of things, all right, that are probably a big difference there. One is the, I didn't use the word rapture, okay, for one, Shannon's question a minute ago. Um, because... All three of these viewpoints believe in the rapture, but they don't believe in the dispensational understanding of the rapture. Dispensationalists believe in what's called the secret rapture. Has anybody ever heard that term before? Secret rapture. The secret rapture is Jesus returning halfway. Picture a fish hook in the sky. All right? Jesus comes down secretly, and snatches his church out, and they disappear out of sight, right? Think left behind. Pilot is flying in the sky, is gone out of his pilot chair, the closer sitting there, and the plane goes down, right? Like, that's, that's the idea. That is called, that is referred to as the secret rapture. None of these positions hold that kind of rapture, okay? They say that, that that's not the rapture that we're talking about. Lynn, you have a question. Halfway meaning he doesn't set his feet down on earth and come in a visible way, right? So, so what these positions hold to is the traditional version of the rapture, which is the rescue of the church where they're lifted up and out of the grave and transformed before the watching world out of great tribulation, right? Does that, does that make sense? But instead of it being a secret rapture, where it happens and nobody knows what happened, the pilot just disappeared. Instead, it is a coming back where everybody knows what happened. Everybody understands. The great day of the wrath of the Lamb has come, and who can stand, as it says at the end of Revelation 6. So all three of these positions hold to a different understanding of the rapture than maybe the one that you grew up if you believe, if you've heard the secret rapture before. I want to tell you something. I'm being completely honest, all right? You can take me at my word. You can look it up. I really, it doesn't matter. This, nobody before 1832 had ever even heard of a secret rapture. 
all right? There's a reason this is called historic premillennialism versus dispensational premillennialism. Dispensationalism was created in 1832, and the explanation of the secret rapture was put in as an explanation of the Thessalonians, which the rest of the viewpoints argue for a different understanding. David Maxwell. The secret rapture by dispensationalists has been defined in three ways, either before the tribulation, middle of the tribulation, or after the tribulation. So you'll find dispensationalists of all stripes that believe the rapture is in one of those three places, but before the millennium. Terry Mobs. 1832, I believe, is what it was. John Nelson Darby. Yeah. Uh, and gained some traction with Plymouth Brethren, eventually made its way over here. Anyway. Um, so, I, you know, when, we, when, when I'm, I'm talking about these things, you, what you'll notice is all three positions hold to a rapture. But the rapture that they're talking about is things get really bad, persecution rises, and it's to a, a, a breaking point, and Christ returns visibly, lifts his church up out of tribulation. The living, oh, actually, the dead first, the dead first rise, their bodies meet their souls, they're transformed. Those who are alive are lifted up as well, transformed in the twinkling of an eye. And instead of getting out of here and going out to heaven, he sets his kingdom down on earth, right? So it's not a, it's not a fish hook, take them out. It is, a, it is a lifting them up, and everybody then knows, oh no, what have we done? Okay, so if you read the very end of chapter 6 of Revelation, that's the picture that you're, you're seeing play out, is, is that. Ah, some would debate that, but th th you get the idea. Um, so, the premillennialist position, I'm going to just put this up here on the screen, and let me see if I've got my, yeah. Um, if we're going to display this graphically, and I also want to put just one little caveat on this, you will find premillennialists that have little variations. I wouldn't put that there, I'd put this here. That doesn't necessarily mean they're not premill. It just means that they may move a thing around or two. It, not everybody in any camp agrees on everything with everybody. Got it? Okay. Um, Christ's first coming, church age, there's going to be the spread of the gospel and increasing tribulation. We're going to have some people kind of, you know, fleeing away from the church and things like that. There's going to be a antichrist. Some would define that as an individual. Some would define that as a, like a govern, governmental organization that kind of takes on with somebody at the head, you know, who might be that figurehead. And then, boom, second coming. When it gets really, it starts to ramp up here, it gets really, really bad, and boom, second coming. Satan is bound with his impact of all the things that he's caused up here. There is, I called it rapture slash resurrection, which is a lifting up. Rapture just means uh, snatching, uh, snatching up of the church, a resurrection from the dead. Everybody is now going, oh man, pre-mill, historic pre-mill, then believe that there will be tons of Jews, ethnic people who are ethnically Israel, who will see Jesus as Messiah and come to faith. All right? 
and he will set up his millennial kingdom. And during this thousand years, could be a literal thousand years, it could be just a long period of time, these Jews will come streaming into, his, into the kingdom. Because this, and he will be set up in Jerusalem. So this will be like David, right, taking up a throne again, essentially. And it'll be like a reestablished kingdom. Then Satan is released for a little while. He does what he was doing up here, what he was trying to do up here. But now he does it here. Gets all the world. Everybody says, we hate these Christians. And now there's tons more of them. And we're going after them. Christ isn't here in Jerusalem to, to fight against us. And so we're, we're going after them. Well, they start mounting up an army. And I don't know, it says a little while. That could be, I don't know how long, how long is a little while in God's time. I, he says a thousand years as a second or whatever. So, you know, it could be a thousand, another thousand years. I don't know. I doubt it, but, it, but anyway, a little while. Armageddon happens, ba- a great battle. Probably what pre, most pre-mill would say is not necessarily on a particular battlefield, um, but, but more like a global persecution. Think of it like that, that, that a battlefield becomes the entire earth, essentially. And at the moment where it just, it's like as bad as it possibly could be, boom, Christ comes down, finally and forever, everybody's judged. And he just takes care of the beast and the false prophet as they're kind of marching. They're getting ready to do their thing. All right? Um, okay. Post-millennialism. Or you might call this conventional post-millennialism, but, but post-millennialism. Uh, according to this view, the progress of the gospel and the growth of the church will gradually increase so that a larger and larger proportion of the world's population will be Christians. Okay? Um, I want to just, with pre-mill, with historic pre-mill, write down the name Jim Hamilton, or, or he, sometimes he goes by in writing James Hamilton. Uh, he goes by a number of different variations of that, but Jim Hamilton, he is... Right now, he's probably the most popular proponent of historic premillennialism. He's very good. Very, I would read any book he's got. I mean, he's, he's, now, some books, he's an academic, so some books are going to be harder than others. But find one that's accessible, read it. He's superb, all right? Uh, he has a podcast called Bible Talk where he just literally walks through every passage of Scripture. So they're, I think they're on like Joshua and our Judges. Just listen to it. It's called Bible Talk. So good, all right? Um, very, very good, enlightening stuff, Jim Hamilton. Post-millennialism, uh, the biggest proponent of that now, besides the Puritans of old, the pr- biggest proponent of this now would be um, Doug Wilson. Is probably the most accessible. He's got a book on post-millennialism that's, that's uh, really quite good. But, um, and, and it'll be a little different probably than what you're used to, but he, he's, he's good. He's not going to, outside of baptizing babies, he's still pretty good. Um, Okay, so uh, according to this view, the gospel increases. So remember, Christ is returning after the millennium. Okay, there's going to be a thousand years first, and then Christ is going to return. Okay, that's the idea. All right, so what's going to happen then is the gospel will increase, will gradually grow over time. It's going to gradually increase until a larger and larger population begins to believe, till that becomes the tipping point. It'll reach a tipping point, and at that tipping point, come on, there it goes, 
as a result of Christianity gradually growing, there will be a significant Christian influences on society, and it more and more function according to God's standards, and gradually that will usher in a millennial age, a thousand years of peace, because the governments of the world will be governed by Christ. In other words, they're saying Christ doesn't have to physically return to set up that government. He can rule from heaven. And gradually what's going to happen is the gospel will spread and it will, it will so permeate the governments, the, the, the people, that eventually the people will fill the governments. And those governments will eventually enact Christian principles. Now, you can certainly see in theory why this will work. One big criticism against post-mill people is that typically people say, I don't think things are getting better, right? Like, that's the criticism is, well, I mean, look around. Post-millennialism obviously isn't true because I don't think things are getting better. That's not really the point that they're making. Think about not how good things or are or how bad things are by, by watching your TV. Think about how, how much the gospel has spread over the last 2,000 years. Think about that, okay? How much has it spread? Well, it started off like this in Jerusalem. And then... Gradually, it's done this around the world to the point where we're in a place of uncharted territory before because we actually know the number of people that haven't heard the gospel, right? It's still large, all right? It's still a lot of people, but we actually know who they are. It's not a secret. We know where the countries are, where the gospel isn't reaching, right? So, that's, that's like a, a, a world that the first century Christians didn't know of, that we would ever be able to kind of count who it is that doesn't believe. So post-mill people are saying, yeah, I mean, we may, we may only be in the chapter one of a 50-page book, all right? So don't think like, well, I'm looking around me and I see persecution on the rise. It does like this, right? 200 years ago, the Puritans were looking around them in this country and going, a Christian nation, right? And they were going, look, out, look at what the gospel's doing. And so they were all post-mill right, back then because they were like, look how favorable this is, is going. So they're saying that it's going to rise and eventually there will be a point, let's say 10,000 years from now, where so many people are Christians that fill the government seats that now go like, like what we're seeing in Zambia where they go, no, Christianity is the official religion of this country, Right? And we're going to enact Christian principles, like Zambia is doing and so, so many other African countries are doing now. Um, and that that's going, to, that's going to occupy the rest of the world. And then after that, at the end of that period, Christ will, there's going to be, you know, it's going to, it's going to reach another tipping point where the devil is sort of released and, and starts to come in. And at that point, Christ will return. Believers will be, well, there it is, raised, raptured, whatever you want to call that, raptured. And final judgment will occur. They'll be raised and then they'll come back to earth here and he'll set up his, his government and will judge and issue, usher them into the eternal state. Okay, here's what that picture kind of looks like. All right, so Christ's first coming. Here's the church age, the spread of the gospel. It kind of goes like this, right? Starts to rise. And then boom, millennial kingdom, thousand years. All right, you know how, how one bleeds into the other? Okay. Then we're going to see, all right, now the Antichrist starts to come in. Now Satan is loosed. We don't know that when that happens. It's a, kind of a spiritual loosing, but he's, his power is, is not restricted any longer. He starts to influence. The Antichrist becomes a part of that. They start to mount up persecution against all the Christians. The government starts to tip the other way. 
And then when it looks like when they're ready on the field of battle to kill all the Christians, boom, second, company, second coming, rapture, meaning the snatching up of the church out of that situation, transforming their bodies, everybody fit for eternity, comes down, judges the living and the dead. Um, that would be punish, eternal punishment for all those who are unbelieving, for those who are believing, eternal reward, and new heavens and new earth, he establishes his government forever. All right. Uh, do you, do you, I want you to see something just real quick. Pre-mill and post-mill, we're talking, they're a thousand years different in their understanding of the same text, right? They're taking the same text, and, there's, and it's, it's different. But notice, they got all the same stuff. You notice that? They got all the same stuff. They're, they're reading the same Bible you are. They're taking the same components, but they see them in a different chain of events. They see one as sequential, one as overlapping, one as whatever. So all these positions are just, they're like that. Again, one's on one side of the fairway, one's on the other side of the fairway. Okay? These are not people outside Christianity. They're people that are looking at the same text and taking it seriously but they understand this flow differently. And each one has their favorite verses and their least favorite verses. Each one has their psalms. and their go, they go, I mean, you go to the psalms and you start, post-millennialism starts to look a lot like what the psalmists are describing in some cases. And so, so you can kind of see where some of these pieces are, are being put together and what they're leaning on, and, and that's informing the way they understand the end times. All right? Um, okay. Amillennialism which is a subset of postmillennialism. It also believes, says, that Jesus is coming back after the millennium. All right? According to this position, the passage in Revelation 20, verses 1 to 10, describes the present church age, meaning that this is an age in which Satan's influence over the nations has been greatly reduced so that the gospel can be preached to the whole world. So here's what the amillennialist is doing. They're saying, no, it's not church age, then into the millennium. The millennium is now in an overlapping state. So millennium, church age. They're together all at once. And what's happening right now is that Satan has been bound currently. Now again, here's pushback. People go, doesn't seem like he's bound. Right? He seems like he's real active. Okay. But what the amillennialist says is, what is he bound for? Don't think bound in the sense of, now he can do nothing. Right? The amillennialist would say, he still blinds the minds of the unbelieving. The difference is, as he says in verse 2, um, or no, in verse 3 of Revelation 20, he says, so that, this is why he bound him and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. In other words, the amillennialist is saying, the nations as a whole are open to the spread of the gospel. So when Jesus comes to his 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 disciples in the Great Commission. And he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and spread the gospel. 
What he is saying is the same thing that's being said in verse 1. And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit. In other words, Christ has the authority over death and Hades. He has the authority over Satan himself. All authority has been given to me. And then what does he do? He seizes the dragon, the strong man, binds him, and is now setting his disciples loose around the world to plunder his goods. Okay? Which is what he talks about in Matthew. All right. So they're saying he's bound, but don't think bound in the, ter- in the sense of he cannot do anything anymore, but bound in the sense that he does not have the kind of persuasion over the nations he once had. Now the gospel can flourish, and it grows. Right? So the Amill person and the post-mill person are pointing to the same gospel spread, and they're coming to two different conclusions about it, but they're, they're pointing to that same gospel spread, and they're saying, see, for the last 2,000 years, this is what's happened, because Satan has been bound from his influence over the pagan nations. Now they're not long, no longer necessarily pagan. Um, so what that means is that Christ's reign in the millennium, according to this view, is not bodily here on earth, but is a heavenly reign during the entire church age the duration of which cannot be known by anyone but the Father. So the amillennialist is saying, remember when Jesus says, I don't know when I'm coming back. Only God knows. That's the reason he says a thousand years. He's meaning to say it's a long period of time, but we don't know what that end is, right? I don't know if it's a thousand or two thousand or ten thousand years, but it's a long period of time, and that's what he's meaning to communicate. And it's during the entire church age. And so then the amillennialist, Listen, if the amillennialist was standing here pitching you, they would say, if you want a simple explanation of the end times, <laughs> that's what amillennialism was invented for, <laughs> essentially. It explains scripture, but it, but it is, Christ died, he rose again, he ascended, and then he'll just come back and it's all over, right? <laughs> that's it. Okay, so here's how, what it looks like if you were to put it into a picture. So, Christ's first coming, notice all the same stuff is here. Christ's first coming, the entire church age, my, just give them out on me here, and the millennial kingdom are the same thing. They're overlapping. That means that there's an, a spread of the gospel, increasing tribulation, the binding of Satan during this age. At some point in the future, we don't know what date that's going to be, only the Father knows, Satan will be loosed for a period of time, in which what will happen is persecution against the church, against God's people, will rise till it becomes global. And the important part about this is everything following the church age becomes just one event, right? So it's Christ's ascension, church age, millennial kingdom, boom, Christ comes back and puts an end to all persecution, judges, Satan, beast, false prophet, throws, and all the people that follow after them, throw them into the lake of fire, new heavens and new earth. So, amillennialism is basically, I got two arrows, right? It's like an up and a down, and that's it. You know, rather than several of these different, different things. Notice, all of these views are taking the same text, they understand the outworking of those texts differently, right? So, what do we expect then when you look at something like this? What is, when we, if we're putting, a, putting Christianity inside of a backyard and, and putting a fence around the backyard, what's inside the fence? Well, you need to be able to understand Christ came. He did all that we said he did. We affirmed he did. That there is a, there will be a growing persecution on the, on the earth. That Christ will return. 
He will judge the living and the dead and will usher us in new heavens and new earth, which all of these positions validate. Yeah? Anybody that refutes those, well, now we're having a discussion about being outside the fence of Christianity. Anybody who affirms those and affirms God's word is inside the fence of Christianity. So there, there is some freedom in, in evaluating what do I think Scripture is actually saying. So the question was asked to me last week, which position do I hold? I want to ask you, can you tell what position I hold? Okay. And what would give you that indication? That's post-millennialism. Puritans is post-millennialism. Is a subset, but is not, in, it's different. Yeah. It's not conventional. They're conventional post-mill. Yeah. I do like the Puritans, though. You're right. You're right. So are you saying now I'm post-mill? Okay. Can you tell by what I preach on Sunday? Can you tell by what I teach in here, which I am? Any thought at all? Okay, so when you say the church will be raptured, do you mean the kind of rapture that all three of these affirm, or do you mean the kind of secret rapture? All right. Okay, so if, but, but then if it's not a secret rapture, and I don't believe in a secret rapture, which you're right about that, um, then I could be any one of these three views. Because all three of these views hold the exact pretty much the exact same position, different timing, but the exact same position on the rapture. Will all Christians be martyred? No. I don't, I don't believe that. Any thought? So I would, go ahead. Amen. I, I would, yeah, I will. I would say I hold mostly to an amillennial position. Um, I love Jim Hamilton and some of the things that he teaches about the historic pre-mill. I can see that. I understand that position. I recognize, and I think that has some real strengths and merits to it. Um, I think in the end, I'm more in line with the amillennial position uh, of reading of Scripture. Um, the Yes. Sam Storms would be a pastor that preaches that, uh, that teaches that. Sam Storms and I don't agree on everything, but on this we would see very uh, eye to eye on. Um, the, uh, goodness gracious, there's tons. Anthony Hokema would be another one. H O E K. Doug Wilson is po- conventional post mill. Conventional post mill. Um, Sam Storms would probably be the, the most. Uh, he has he has one I've had on here on the bibliography. Uh, Coming Kingdom, um, millennial argument. He he's really good at that. Um, it's a it's a thick book. It's not easy to to trudge through. But it's not, I don't think the vocabulary is way up here. There's a, there, there's a YouTube video that's years old now called An Evening of Eschatology. 
John Piper hosted the event, and he had Sam Storms, Jim Hamilton, and Doug Wilson all on the stage at one time, and they talk about eschatology for two hours. So, and, the, and Sam Storms and Jim Hamilton just, they just, they get their Bibles open, and they're like this and this and this, and they're just going at it, and then Doug Wilson throws in his little things every once in a while. Uh, it's very fun. I enjoy it. <laughs> I've enjoyed a lot about it. Um, but, but here's the, here is the thing, here's the one thing that I would say on amillennialism where I get, where I'm a little, I shade a little bit more towards pre-mill, is pre-mill is a lot friendlier toward Israel, and would say that there is a, there is, uh, so Jim Hamilton would say he does think that when Christ returns, it, ethnic Israel will have its eyes open to the Messiah and return, and I say that is and, and Sam Storms and peop, a lot of people in the amillennial group would say, absolutely not. That's not what's going to happen. And I would say, I don't, I think there is, there is a, a lot of merit to that reading of Romans 9 to 11. I think there's a lot there. And amillennialism traditionally would say, no, that's not what's happening there. I can see the amillennial argument. I can see the pre-mill argument. And I hold open that God can do whatever he wants with native Israel. And I have no idea what he's going to do. But if he opens the eyes of native Jews, then they are going to come to faith in Christ and none other. It's not going to be through sacrifice at a temple. It's not going to be any of that. It is going to be through faith in the resurrected Messiah. We're not going backwards. So, uh, so I would say that is, is probably where I get the most pre-mill. But more often than not, amill is probably going to be the way I see Scripture more than anything. Um, maybe conventional post-mill, ah-mill, the two could function together. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and and that would be more typical of a conventional post-millennial person and probably amillennialism too. Um, and so you'll notice, and I'll just say this, if you listen, if you ever listen to Doug Wilson, okay, just as an example, there's lots of where we disagree, but um, if you listen to him talk about politics, he's thinking from a post-millennial viewpoint, and you can hear it when he talks politics about how Christians in this country need to essentially, not in a militaristic way, but take over the government in a in a spiritual, in a evangelistic kind of way. And, and I promise you, if you listen to him talk about governmental politics, you'll go, yeah! You know, you'll, you know th- there will be a part of you that does that. And, and uh, that is a, it's a very post-millennial uh, argument. It really is. And now, what would make you post-mill is if you agree that that is going to happen, that that's, a, that's what God's Word says is going to happen, and it will eventually happen. may not happen in my lifetime, but it, it will happen eventually, you know. That would be a post-millennial argument. Yeah. Yeah. So plan is, again, we'll spend a, a, a few more weeks going through different things. We'll wrap up the Old Testament. We're then going to go into 
intertestamental period between the Old Testament and New Testament, talking about how the, the land was ruled by successive kingdoms uh, due to the collapse of due to Greece and then the collapse of Greece and things like that and the Seleucids coming in and things like that. Eventually, the uh, leading to the, the Roman occupation, which will help us understand the context of the world that Jesus is born into. All right, so we can understand what political parties are at play because believe it or not, in the Gospels, it's a very very political environment that Jesus is stepping into. And that was created by 400 years of different ruling kingdoms that came into that land. Okay? Spend a little time there. Go through the New Testament at a quicker clip than we did the Old Testament. Okay? But talk about the history of the church expansion and things like that up into the book of Revelation. At that point, we're going to stop and we're going to deal all with eschatology. All with end time stuff before we deal with the book of Revelation and what's going on there. When we do that, we'll go through all basically four views of the book of Revelation. What it's actually saying and doing. So you'll hear plenty of amillennialism. You'll hear plenty of postmillennialism. You'll hear plenty of premillennialism. Plenty of dispensationalism. So we'll deal with all of them if you'll bear with me. If you just hang in here for about 18 months or so, <laughs> we'll, we'll get there and we'll, we'll go through it so that we can, we can understand it. And I'll spend a lot more time on each individual position and we can go through the book of Revelation as if we believe that position. And I'll do everything that I can to argue from a position that is favorable to whatever we're, we're talking about. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, in the meantime... You know, read, interact with, with people of these positions. Jim Hamilton, Doug Wilson, Sam Storms, you'll find a whole bunch of others in there. I can email me, I can send you more. Uh, there's, we're, we have a wealth of resources in this country especially to have access to, to be able to read. Things that are accessible, things that are hard to understand, and er everything in between. But look, you either just sit there and don't learn anything and then die one day, or you just open a book and start reading. And if you don't understand page two, go back to page one and make sure you understand it. And then step into page two, right? I mean, that's how any of us do it, okay? Just take it one step at a time, okay? We can do that, yeah? In the meantime, don't throw rocks at anybody, right? Let's, let's deal with this as brothers and sisters, all right, as we think about these things deeply, good? Okay, any other final questions before I pray? All right. Yeah, well, yeah, that's what I mean. In the grand scheme of things, you're, you know, it doesn't matter what you or I think, it's going to pan out one way or another, right? So, so, so we just want to now just apply ourselves to the Word and see if we can understand what He has revealed to us. So we'll take it from there. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm grateful for this church, and I'm grateful for people that are willing to, uh, to put up with me, for one, and to listen to all these various viewpoints and, and really open our minds to try to wrestle with them and really see what your word says. More than anything, that's what we want to do. We want to open up your word week in and week out. We want to understand it. We want to try to wrap our minds around it and all the while also get help from other people who have attempted to do the exact same thing. So we ask for your help in one, giving us understanding 
to your word and helping us to to really apply it to our lives. This is not just an academic exercise, but more than anything, we walk away confident knowing that regardless of which one of these positions is right or, or probably all of them are a little bit wrong, that Christ is going to return and we are going to be resurrected from the dead, that we are going to be with him for eternity. And that there is great encouragement there. Um, so I pray that we would all be united in that effort. And that any attempts to draw lines between members of the body would be seen as satanic, because that's what it is. So I pray that you would uh, rid us of that influence, and instead that we would uh, apply ourselves to your word and be encouraged by it. So I pray that you would uh, help foster that second in our church, that, that spirit of unity as we seek to understand what's really written in your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.